Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. You are entering into a world of make-believe and magic. Yes. And that's what I love about yes. it. Yes. And how willing we are as an audience. We're like, suspend everything. Our belief. No, I don't care if that, that flat is wobbly. <laughs> yes. I don't care if she it's got dodgy be- He's got a dodgy beard. <laughs> I can see the wig lace. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. Now, my guest this week is an actor. He's an activist. He's a documentary filmmaker. He is a mental health advocate. And now he's the author of the most beautiful memoir called Maybe I Don't Belong Here. He's the brilliant and brilliantly generous David Harewood. Now, you know David from huge TV shows like Homeland, Supergirl, and um, a ton of movies. He was the first black actor to play Othello at the National Theatre. He's had an enormously storied career. But in middle age, he went back and did something extraordinary. He decided to investigate something that happened to him in his early 20s. When he was not long out of RADA, one of the most famous drama schools in the world, when he was making his way as a young actor and getting very successful, he suffered a psychotic breakdown. He was sectioned twice. And in middle age, he went back to try to understand what had happened. He made documentaries about it. He wrote this extraordinary memoir. And in what he's done to demythologize the taboo around mental health, and particularly the intersection of the experience of people of color and mental health, it has been transformative. He's changed the landscape of our understanding with his honesty, with his bravery in re-engaging with this extraordinary period of his life. And we talk about it extensively because it seemed impossible to separate that from his life in the theatre. The two were indivisible, as you'll hear. David was so generous to invite me into his sumptuous dressing room, Noel Coward's dressing room indeed, at the Noel Coward Theatre in London's West End, where he was playing that night in this huge and brilliant hit called Best of Enemies, written by James Graham, directed by Jeremy Herrin, And David was so lovely to allow me into this beautiful dressing room, which, as you'll hear, had some resonance for me too. Not long before he was going to start his warm-up to go on stage that night. And I can tell you, having seen the show that night, it's fantastic. If you can get to the West End before it closes, 
It's an event. It really should be seen. It's an extraordinary play. Anyway, we had a wonderful chat, so great that it couldn't be contained in a single part. There's a part two to this chat with double helping of Harewood, and I could have had so much more. And it was very moving to me to renew my my friendship with David after many, many years of not seeing each other. It was it was just lovely and very moving to sit down and talk to him. Gentlemen of the stage door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Harewood and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your beginners. Listen, I know how precious it is when you are doing a play like you are doing right now, mm. Best of Enemies at the Noel Coward Theatre mm. on St. Martin's Lane mm. by James Graham. <laughs> you are in the run of a play. You know, you can't do anything when you're doing that. You can barely remember to Absolutely, eat. Absolutely, yeah. I forgot how hard it was, actually. Eat, sleep. Yeah. Make sure you're there for the half. Yeah. Just basically, you are You are in, as Bill Nye once brilliantly put it, doing a play is like agreeing to be ill for three months. <laughs> that's, just, that's the best description. You are essentially managing yourself yeah. carefully through every day till you have to do this thing. And Absolutely. It dominates everything, right? So this is hard enough that you're mm. doing this play. Secondly, you have invited me into this magnificent Here dressing room. Yes, yes. Noel Coward's yes, dressing room. Yeah, yeah. At the Noel Coward Theatre. And if I may say, uh, I interviewed Simon Russell Beale in his dressing room at the bridge. This is an upgrade. This <laughs> <laughs> feels like my suite at the Savoy. And it is glorious. And actually, I remember it because this was my dressing room. Oh, Years was, ago. It, was it the same layout? I think it was. Because I think they I changed it. To say, oh, well, in that case, you're finding out. Apparently, you're, you're, it was over there. Oh, all right. I don't know, but you people... Could be, have... You could be smoking me out here. <laughs> I, my, it's all a little bit of a blur. I did an adaptation of a Tennessee Williams film script called Baby Doll. Real sort of cause celeb movie in the 60s here. And I'm sure that this was my dressing room. Amazing time. Anyway, listen. It's amazing that you've agreed to talk to me while you're doing this play. Brought me into your inner sanctum, this beautiful <laughs> dressing room. <laughs> but thirdly, we're doing this on your birthday. On my birthday, which, which is always a bit of an odd day for me. I've got to be honest with you. I mean, it's an odd day for me. I've always sort of not celebrated my birthday. Ah. I'm sort of a let's just get on with it sort of person. Because my birthday was quite so close to Christmas and we were kind of reasonably poor family, you know, working class poor family. It was always, I'll get you something for Christmas. Uh, so birthdays are always sort of sure. not, it was a deferred joy because yeah. Christmas was when you were going to get things. Right. And, and I get strangely emotional about it all. So it's nice seeing an old friend on this day. And the fact that it's my birthday makes it even more special. So. And what's it like on your birthday, waking up and coming in to do this play? What, what does that feel like? <laughs> well, I tell you what, it's much harder than I thought it was going to be. Schlepping in from, I mean, South London, getting in from South London is quite the journey. You know, it becomes very special when you hit the West End and you start seeing the lights and Leicester Square, Trafalgar Square, and then I see my face on a billboard. It's just like, it's just, it's extraordinary. And I sort of get a little bit kind of giddy and thinking, Ooh, you know, I'm in the West End. It's still very, very exciting for me. And then I sort of, as you were saying about, what Bill Nye said about being ill. The most awake I feel is about 20 minutes before the half. Because that's when I start to get my warm-up going. 
and I start to wake my body up, and I start to wake my mind up, and I start to wake myself up. And that's when I suddenly go, ooh. And I get this burst of energy, and I suddenly feel, for the first time in the day, awake. Mm. Because as you said, I will leave here tonight. Most times I will leave here. I'll probably head straight home. I won't get home till about 11, half 11. I'll have a little bit of whiskey, and, you know, and then I'm in, and then I'm in bed. But I, I find that in the morning I'm exhausted. And this is, as you'll see, because I think you'll come to see the play tonight. Come see the play tonight. It's a really out there performance, and it takes a lot of energy and concentration, more than a lot of other plays, because it's verbatim. A lot of the stuff that that happens in this play is verbatim. It's what they're actually saying. Yes. So just to give you some context, it's the debates, televised debates, almost the first first televised debate between between William F. Buckley Jr., Mm. played by you, Mm. and Gore Vidal, Vidal. played by Zachary Quinto, friend of the podcast. And so it's these two ideologically separated Ideologically opposed men. Exactly. Going out. Who hated each other. Right. And their barbs were not only deeply cutting, but also very funny and passionate. Buckley passionately believed in what he was saying. Vidal is sort of an iconoclast, really, and he's sort of just just wants to make Buckley look bad, and he's kind of reveling in this kind of freewheeling, prepared attack mode, and does succeed in destabilizing Buckley. But over the course of about six weeks, these two guys debated them from on ABC television. Complete experiment. Hmm. But by the end of the experiment, by the end of that presidential cycle, it was the most watched television program of all three channels. Was Whereas ABC was the lowest ranked network. And at the end of it, everybody was watching these debates because they were engrossing. So they succeeded in popularizing, kind of debating opposites in terms of political debates. So for that was the moment when you get this split between Fox News, CNN, left, right, getting somebody on the left and somebody on the right and just let them at it. Yeah. TV as spectacle, news as entertainment. Yeah. And, and that was the, the very first time it had ever been done. When they saw the ratings spike, they thought, we've got magic here. Wow. So that's where, that changed the nature of news attainment, particularly in America, yeah. where news became not just Walter Cronkite telling everybody the day's news. Right. It was, let me wind this person up here and then get this person <laughs> up, wind them up as well, and then let them at it. Right. And it just, it just became, a, it, it, it was the start of the culture wars. And it's, it points to exactly where we are here today. Yeah. Like GB News and Fox News and CNN. It's, it's, that was the, this was the sort of kernel of it. Would that the standard of discourse was still as good as wish Vidal it, wish it was. and Buckley. Wish right. it was. And but they have a lot to answer for, really, is what you're saying. They do have a lot to answer for, but, but I think also at the same time, it is wonderful to hear people who do genuinely understand the nuances of politics. Right. Whereas I don't think today's generation of politics, I don't believe a word they say. Sure. I don't believe a word that comes out of uh, Prime Minister's mouth, right. any of the Tories' mouths, whereas I think Buckley was genuinely trying to espouse core conservative principles. Right. Even though they were, um, I don't agree with them, it's been astonishing to delve into his politics in light of what MAGA Trumpers are doing in America right now. Right. Burning books and just the nonsense that's happening in yeah. America right now. And to see that what Buckley was trying to do was sort of, let's have a decent conservatism yeah and actually the the world has followed him you know m- most of europe is right is, has a right wing right of center government so i think generally i think specifically since the 70s 
most communities, most countries have gone towards the, you know, the right. You know, but it's, yeah. it's been quite sad, really. Gosh, it's so incredibly exciting prospect that I get yeah, to watch I'm, this later I'm on. Banging on about no, 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 it's brilliant because because it's so fascinating. It feels so topical and. Whatever one thinks of Buckley or Vidal, they had intellectual heft. Absolutely. I mean, I saw the documentary on which it was based. Mm. You know, they are unarguable yeah. rhetoricians, yes. right? They are great public speakers. Absolutely. When you talk about the impoverishment of today's political class, it's simply because they just, they're nowhere near either of them in terms of no. talent, sheer no. talent at Absolutely. what they do. But let's get back to your talent. Tell me about, tell me about, so I'm, I'm very interested in this thing about how you feel on your birthday doing this play. And you were saying that it's a really out there performance. It's extraordinary, tiring. You will get back late. I turned it down. It takes twice. a lot out of you. Say what? I turned it down twice. You turned it down yeah. twice. Why? Well, first of all, I couldn't see myself. Kwame rang me up. The play was originally done at the Young Vic. Sure. And Kwame, who runs the Young Vic, always calls me and says, oh, I've got to play for you. And most of the times I say, and I'm not really ready for it all. And I haven't been on stage in 10 years. But I knew I was coming back, and he just rang me up. The timing couldn't be better, but he rang me up and said, I've got a part for you. I said, oh, what's this? And he went, William F. Buckley. Never heard <laughs> Excuse of Excuse me. Oh, right. And I never heard of he says, He says, I'm sending you a play called Best of Enemies, and it's taken from a documentary called Best of Enemies. So I read the play. I mean, I couldn't understand hardly half of it. Because the word, as you said, their, their, their vocabulary is extraordinary, sure. particularly Buckley. Sure. His vocabulary is extraordinary. So half of it was like, I don't know what that word means. I'm going to the dictionary and looking at... And actually, when in the dictionary, if you tap in hobgoblinization, Buckley's face comes up because he, he's the only person that's actually <laughs> actually used it. What's the word? Hobgoblinization. Hobgoblinization. That is the hobgoblinization of, of the Marxists. <laughs> I mean, it's just... He plucks it out. <laughs> it's a end. coinage. Brilliant. And I thought, no, I can't play that. And also, I didn't agree with his politics. There were suspicions of him being racist and uh, a segregationist. And what well, he was a segregationist and I was like I can't, it doesn't make any sense I can't get there I, I, I'm not sure so I turned it down and then he rang me up again a couple of days later and he went have another read and I had another read and then I read about James Graham you know saw that James Graham had been the playwright sure. the, the playwright of the moment extraordinary playwright and then I read the play I started to read the play again and it became his journey almost became quite Shakespearean in that, in that he was this Buckley's this sort of figure of how he wants it, decency and uprightness and steadfastness. And, and yet, he, at the end of the play, he calls Gore queer and regrets it for the rest of his life. Yeah. Literally for the rest of his life. Because he let, he let the cuckoo show. Yeah. And I thought that was quite Shakespearean. I thought yeah. the journey from being this upright, decent, yeah. thinking man to calling somebody a queer live on television and, and then regretting it. I thought, that's a really hell of a journey. Mm. And then I watched the documentary and thought, I just found it fascinating. And the more I read about him, the more I thought, this could be a hell of a challenge. And having played Martin Luther King and Mandela, where you sort of, you, you sort of go, how the fuck am I going to play that? And then eventually, you sort of, you, you, the more you read, the more you think, your brain starts to hone in on a man mm. as opposed to an icon right. and a sort of, legend it all starts to go oh i think he's this and i think it's that and how how did he relate to his wife how did he relate to his children and you forget all the other accolades and all the other stuff and you start beating down on character and that's what i did with buckley i started reading about his wife and how much he loved adored his wife and adored his kids and and i started all the stuff about him being a racist and uh, segregationist and kind of started to fall away and i started to see the man and actually i think i don't rather than being a racist i think he was an elitist highly privileged man right 
And I think to someone like that, even the concept of racism doesn't make sense. They just don't get it. it they just don't understand it. It's a concept they don't, can't relate to because they are extremely privileged and everything's done for them. Yeah. And in a sense, that's where his conservative values kind of came from. And so the more I read about him and his family, the more I started to strangely admire him and actually, actually sort of start to uh, feel for him. And I, and I kind of started to, get a, I started to get a bead on him. And, and I love playing him. I really adore playing him. It's amazing that moment, isn't it, <coughs> as an actor, particularly perhaps on a stage where you know you've got to keep doing it night after night. Mm. You've, got to, you've got to go into the ring for this bloke yeah. every night. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to go out there and represent him. It's very hard to not feel <coughs> something human for the character you're playing yeah. if you have to keep on doing it all yeah. the time. Whether the houses are good, whether the houses are bad, you, you've got to go out and feel. But it's extraordinary how we get that little fire, don't we? That little spark of imagination where you're suddenly like, oh, he means something to me. Yeah. And this can happen to the worst monsters. Yeah, 100%. You suddenly start to feel their humanity on some completely instinctive, almost physical level before you perhaps know it even intellectually. 100%. And I did and that, I did that when I did uh, Blood Diamond, where I played this really awful character in Blood Diamond, the movie Blood Diamond, where I'm this, um, I hire these charred soldiers <coughs> and, I'm, and I'm an awful person. And right at the end of the movie, I say to, this, I say to the, the lead character, uh, Jaiman Honsu, I say, you think I'm a devil, but it's only because I, I live in hell. I want to get out, just like you. And everybody kind of went, oh, and leaned in and went, he's not a bad, he just wants to get out of this hellhole. Right. Uh, yeah, he does all these terrible things. And, 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 but at the, at, the, at the kernel of it, he doesn't want anything to do with it. He doesn't want to be in this place. Right. I want to get out, just like you. Everybody wants to get out. Everybody has a motor yeah. that they completely believe in, and often it's to do with desperation, mm. you know, particularly if you're behaving appallingly badly. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Can we just go back a bit? Because I'm, I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> it's just it's been, been so the long, loveliest man. thing. I should say... David and I did a play together <coughs> in 1992. Ow. Makes question marky inflection. I think it was 1992 in Scarborough at the Stephen Joseph Theatre, famous because it's Alan Akebourne's theatre, and Alan Akebourne directed this play. Yes, he did. Yeah. And it was about a rowing eight. 
It was called brilliant. One over the eight. Brilliant title. One over the eight. <laughs> and anyway, we'll we'll get to it. But I just haven't. I don't know if I've seen you since then. Is that can no? That, that, be true? Was, that was it. That was it. That was the last time can I saw that you. Be true. But but I remember. I have fond memories of that production. Yeah, I it do was too. such a laugh. It was. You know, eight guys and that one lovely girl, yeah. Saskia, Saskia Wickham. Zach Saskia Wickham. Yeah. I've never seen her since. What a great group of people. It was a lovely group of people. Yeah. And actually, 92, that was, my God, that must have been, um, that was after my breakdown. It was. Yeah, I think that's right. Just only, I only know this, of course, because I've just read your book, this mm. extraordinary book, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, which is just an, uh, an amazing book. But I didn't no. You didn't know that? I, I didn't. Well, I, did, I certainly didn't know that you had a breakdown when mm. we worked together. I remember one extraordinary thing from it. it you, you will have forgotten this. I think I may have written it to you some while ago. You and I were taking a walk down Scarborough Seafront. Play was on. You were great on it. It was, you know, in its own modest East Yorkshire way. <laughs> it was a success, I think. And we were wandering around feeling good about ourselves, young men out and about and an elderly couple elderly white couple passed us and I just carried on sort of chuntering away to you about something you stopped and you said did you see that and I said what what no and you said the the way those two looked at me and then what they said to each other and they walked on and I said no I didn't see it and you said Johnny you will never know what it's like to be me Mm. talking about Buckley and his privilege. And, and that moment has stayed with me throughout the, the years that we haven't seen each other because your extraordinary activism, your extraordinary bravery in <clears throat> talking about your breakdown, about mental health, about the part that race played in it, it's just come back to me more and more. I was living in America before we started recording. I was talking about that, about the murder of George Floyd. What a sort of inflection moment that was of thinking, I wonder mm. if there's somewhere else. But, uh, but I also had many conversations with my English friends about, you know, doesn't exist, doesn't exist in the same way, you know. And I only had to remember that moment on Scarborough Seafront to be reminded of a life that I couldn't imagine, no. you know, mm. that was yours. Mm. Anyway, that was my memory from it. I don't know if you even remember that moment, probably not. No, because it, you know they come so they sure. come so sure, frequently. Sure, 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 sure. But most of the stuff I did talk about, I, uh, most of the stuff I have remembered, I put it in that book, and it's been an incredible journey for me personally, <clears throat> from rediscovering, it, sending out that tweet basically, and saying you know, yeah. and you know, I sent, I sent in 2017, I sent out a tweet on World Mental Health Day. The tweet was something like, oh, if, if, as somebody who's had a breakdown, just want to say, look after yourself today, get some help if you can, and look after yourself. And it just went viral. You, you got on a plane. It's oh, one yeah, of those tweets that you get on a plane and get off and it's become a sort of... By, by the time I got to landed in LA yeah. and turned my phone on, it yeah. was 40,000 retweets. <laughs> and I had a massive panic attack. I thought, fuck. <laughs> you know, what have I done? And then that led to an article in The Guardian. Yeah. And a friend of mine who, who, was, who witnessed me go through my, my breakdown read the article and was heard to say, that's not how I remember it. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. Am I on the wrong you know, train here? Did I, have I got this wrong? So I pitched an idea to the BBC. I know a few guys at the BBC who do documentaries, and I pitched an idea to the BBC about I don't know, me rediscovering my breakdown. And they said, well, luckily, you know, we're doing this whole season on mental health. You know, we'd love you to, you know, we'd love you to do that. You know? So 
I went off back to the uh, States to do my TV show, let them arrange all of it, didn't ask any questions, because, you know, the best thing is to do, get all that stuff on camera. And it was me probably thinking that it was going to be a bit of a laugh, because some of the stuff I did when I was crazy right. was a little bit out there. Quite a lot of it was out there. And I thought I was going to discover all that stuff. Mm. But in reality, what I, found out was, what I found out was just how ill I was and how close I came to really never recovering. And it was really scary, John. Really scary. One of the scenes was I was supposed to go pick up my medical, because they found my medical records from 30 years ago. Yeah. In the bowels of this Whittington Whittington Hospital. Hospital. Yeah. Then they they gave them to me, and I was supposed to sit there and read them. I opened the envelope, and I I just, I I closed it straight away. I thought, no, cut, cut, cut. Not not going there, not going there, not going there. And and that was when I was really reminded of how ill I was. I saw what what I'd said. And because I, it's all written, it's they yeah. literally log everything you say. Everything you say, everything you do was in the records. And I'd never seen them. But I closed the envelope. I, 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 knew, I knew what I'd read, what I'd read, but I didn't want to refer to it. Yeah. And it really destabilized me for the entire rest of the shoot because I didn't know what else I was going to find. And all, all but, but, but I must say, the kids that I was working with on that documentary, which is on the iPlayer now, uh, really got me through it because they were all recovering from psychosis. And, I, and, and they gave me a lot of inspiration, watching them struggle with their own condition. Yeah. And see, yet still be able to work and live and go out and laugh. And I was like, wow, these kids are, you know, they really inspired me, they really inspired me and really sort of rooted me and took the emphasis off me. And I'm sitting in the hotel room just sort of every night thinking, should I hit the minibar? Because I was really struggling. I was really, I was, I was in Birmingham, filming in Birmingham, away from my family. And I'd just come back from the States, having done six months over there. And I was like, where, where am I in a fucking hotel room in Birmingham? I, should, I want to be at home with my family resting. Because in four weeks, I'm going to be back, back in the States doing another season. It all just seemed so nuts. And I really, really struggled trying to keep it together. And I was really glad that it was over. When it, when it finished, I was really glad it was over. But I very nearly had another breakdown. Mm. It was much harder than I thought it was going to be. Gosh. Much harder than I thought it was going to be. But actually, when it came, and then when it came out on TV, I saw, as soon as I saw adverts for it, I had a massive panic. I thought, I've fucked my career here. I, I, I don't need to be doing it. I shouldn't have done this. And then my wife was suddenly worried and... And she said, you know, what about the kids? The people are going to take the piss out of the kids at school. Dad's crazy. So it's like panicking about that. So, so and the night it came on, nobody watched it. The kids went to bed early. They never go to bed. They went to bed early. The wife went to bed about eight o'clock. And I'm sitting, sitting, sitting there thinking, I, I better, I'm, I'm not going to watch this. And I, so I, I don't know what I, I think I had a session with my therapist. And then when that finished, turned all the lights off, went to bed. And I was just about to drop off to sleep. And every single device in my house, Mac, iPad, phone, everything was beeping, buzzing, you know, vibrating. I thought, oh, it must have finished. So I kind of turned things off. And, and then the house phone went. And it was my mom. And my mom just went, well done, son. The first thing she said, well done, son. And that really calmed me down. Mm. Really calmed me down. And then I started looking at some of these emails and messages, and it was people I had, like said, people I hadn't worked with for years, just saying, "Wow, that's amazing! Well done! Well yeah. brave of you! Well done!" And not only that, but then people started saying, "Oh, that happened to my dad." Right. We've never, I've never, we've never talked about it. 
oh, that happened to Uncle Shirley and we didn't know what it was. And next day, mine rang me up and said, you know, calls about psychosis just rose 110, 110% about psychosis have risen. And I could not, Johnny, walk down the street without people stopping me in the street yeah. and engaging me in conversation about their own experiences of psychosis. I didn't realise it was that common. Yeah. I thought it was just me. And that was really difficult because I was very vulnerable. And I'd find myself on the street sobbing with complete strangers. Because it's a really, really traumatising experience to watch someone go through and to go through yourself. Yeah. And all these people just will just literally... I'd be walking down Tottenham Court Road and somebody would say, and you know, when you're an actor, people tend to leave you alone. Right. That was gone. It was, it was Mr. Harewood just want to say, thank you so much for doing that documentary. My mum, and then they'd start crying. Yeah. And then I'd start crying. And then we'd give each other a hug. And then, you know, it was overwhelming at first. But, and I was glad to get back to Vancouver to, to, to shoot another season. But then, I, and I was, in, I was in shock for about a year because I just, I, I couldn't quite process what had happened. Yeah. And then, the pandemic hit, and then we flew back to, to England. I remember when George, when George Floyd happened, the, the, the morning George Floyd, you know, we, the news came through that George Floyd had been killed. And there was that way that people were coming out all over the world, in Sweden, in Brazil. You know, people were coming out in support of Black Lives Matter. But in England, there was this sort of sense of, oh, no, that's America. We don't have that's somebody else's problem. We don't have racism. Yeah, it's, it's, that's America. Oh. I thought, that's fucking not true. Yeah. So I immediately started writing... And I'd already been asked to write. It, it just flew out to me. I wrote like a, I wrote ten thousand words immediately. Wow. Sent it to this agent, this woman who, who would sort of been asking me to write, and she went, "Keep going." Wrote another chapter about my past, and then I wrote a, a chapter called "The Ward," which is one of my favourite chapters. But I get out of this mental institution. <sighs> but I knew I couldn't write the entire book until I got back to Vancouver to open that envelope. Wow! So I got back and I read my medical records. Three years later. And it was really difficult, but extraordinary. How much of it was about my race? All the stuff I was saying in the fucking mental institution was how confused I was about yeah, my yeah. identity. Two questions I've got for you about that. And then I really want to circle back to your early days in theatre because I'm so struck by these threads, looking, researching something of your extraordinary life. The threads that go through it are so interesting to me, recurring mm, threads. Martin Luther King's an extraordinary recurring thread. King Lear is an extraordinary mm. recurring thread. Uh, thread. Othello is an extraordinary mm. recurring thread. They're just some ex- amazingly, these, these, these sort of almost like waves that continually wash on your shore. It's really amazing to see. But I wanted to ask you, hard though it must have been to, to go through that extraordinary honesty make the documentary, write the book, be an absolutely open book about everything. Do you think it changed? Do you think it's changed your acting on stage? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I feel like I'm far more fearless because I've just opened up. I'm more vulnerable now. Mm -hmm. And I think before as an actor, I used to think you have to be bulletproof on stage. Mm -hmm. And actually, I remember Jack Lemmon always saying, you know, you want to be a great actor, you have to be vulnerable. Let them in, he would say, let them in. And I think I try and do that now. Mm. Whereas before, I don't think I did. So I think I'm much more cognizant of, of my vulnerability and how important that is in my performances. Yeah. And also, there, there is that sort of, you know, I spoke about it earlier, that fearlessness. I, I love being on stage. 
you know, I think before I was so wrapped up in and so concerned about um, how I was being seen, but black being a black actor. Should he play be playing this? You can't be like you can't play that. You can't play this. You can't play that. Now I don't give a fuck, and I just really enjoy playing characters. Yeah, and. You know, a few people have said, oh, you can't play Buckley, that's ridiculous. But most of the reviews and, and most of the people who've seen it just say you forget it immediately yeah. because you are immediately just drawn into your character. Yeah. And actually, they find that they are drawn to Buckley yeah. almost because I am black. And, and, you know, so that's a coup for, I think, for Kwame and, and yeah. for, if, for having the imagination to allow me to play this part. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, that extraordinary thing you described, beautifully, but also you, you write so beautifully about in the book, about your medical records. Mm. Is it fanciful to think of it as like reading? Because it's dialogue, mm. right? It's what you said. Mm. I, I just find it an extraordinary idea that you might be reading a verbatim play of your own life in which you are a character. <clears throat> it was slightly odd because it's, it's a disturbed version of myself. Right. But it's almost a disturbed version of myself that's speaking truth. And what was so shocking about it was my confusion about my identity. And it's hard to read. And it was a real struggle. But at one point I said I'd merged hearts with a young black boy. It's almost like, I mean, John, you know what it's like. You know, I'd gone to drama school, predominantly white. Most of my work had been in predominantly white company. I'd been the only black person in the company. And when I initially, when I came out of drama school, I found that I was pretty roundly and soundly rejected by the establishment critics and by back in those days, you know, oh, you're a black actor. And I never really thought about my color. I mean, probably naively, really. But right through drama school, it wasn't, I, I was loving it. I could do Dostoevsky, Chekhov, Moliere. Brecht, you know, I was doing, I was loving all this, all all these new writers, and I'd I'd never heard half of them. So I'm suddenly just like going, oh my god, I'm on a Russian submarine and doing this below depths, uh, uh, doing some Dostoevsky plane, really loving it. And then having directors say to me, oh yeah, but you can't you can't do Chekhov because you're black, and just not getting what they were right. talking about, just not understanding what they were talking about, and then getting that hostility from the press, and then also being rejected by the black community because I was not black enough, right. it was enormously destabilizing for me. And to come out into that storm of where my skin was a political statement without me even opening my mouth, and my, the parts I did, the parts I chose, were a political statement, I wasn't ready for any of that. And it just spanned me out. Yeah. And, and a lot of that confusion is in my medical records. And, I, and I, it was hard... The reason why I closed that envelope initially was because it scared me. But sitting with it, doing therapy about it, I've done you know, lots of therapy about identity and my feelings of self. And it's been enormously helpful because it's just like, I'm just more content with myself. Right. And I don't beat myself up because I talk partial or, or you know, because I'm not street or I'm not, you know, I'm in an interracial relationship. You know, there's always those pressures that used to sort of, way on me where I used to think oh no I've got to be this or I've got to be that right. I've got to represent these people here I try not to carry any of that now and I just say no I'm just 
David Harewood. And it's been enormously freeing, but it's been a hard fucking journey to get there. Sure. It seems amazing to me that you should be playing something now, <laughs> a white yeah. American upper class intellectual. Yeah. yeah. It's just the most fantastic, it's the most fantastic fuck you <laughs> to any limitations yeah. exactly. that could ever possibly be placed on you Absolutely. as an actor. Absolutely. And the fact that at the end of the play, they kind of go, oh, that's got me. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it feels good. So. Now, do we feel like that is a particularly achievable gift of theatre to... Could you imagine playing that part on film or TV? Mm, I don't think film is caught up in that sense. I think film is almost more... Right. Literal. 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 Yeah. There's far more... Which is why I hated all of this, these boundaries and... Yeah. In, in, because theatre is about the imagination. Yeah. As soon as you walk in the door... Yes. You are entering into a world of make-believe and magic. Yes. And that's what I love about yes. it. Yes. And how willing we are as an audience. We're to like, suspend everything. That, our belief. No, I don't care if that, that flat is wobbly. <laughs> yes. I don't care if she it's can't dodgy be- He's got a dodgy beard. <laughs> I can see the wig lace. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. I will, but I will, it is required you do awake your faith, as Paulina says, about seeing the statue of Hermione and a winter's tale. And I always think that is the emblem of theatre. And it's true. We we, will awake our faith at the drop of a hat. Mm. We'll do anything. I think that is the most glorious sort of case for the transformative powers of doing something live in front of other people. And that we are all in this collusion. Of imagination Absolutely. together, and there is something extraordinarily magic spell about that, isn't there? Particularly when one hundred percent, John, and that's why it was so crushing to me that they were bringing up something as nonsensical as my colour of my skin. Right. You can't play that. Why? Right. It just didn't make any sense to me, or it didn't make any sense to me why I was being suddenly being limited, and why I was being told I can't do this and I can't do that. It just literally destroyed my mind. I was being attacked from the black community for playing someone apparently Sloan, who's bisexual, a murderer, uh, you know, a, a de- devious, all those in you know, horrible. Joe Wharton's entertaining Mr. Sloan, yeah. Sloan, which is a fantastic character. Yeah. But the local black newspaper, I did it in Derby, just after absolutely went after me mm-hmm. and said, How dare I play this part? I'm bringing black people in disrepute, and mm-hmm. how dare I play this part? And that, that, that people should demonstrate their, their disapproval by walking out. That's what he said in this local black newspaper. So I think it's the end of the second act. I walk down to the front of the stage and I do this really quite, it's very funny monologue, but I'm talking about, it's, it's quite an abuse. I'm abusing this little girl. Uh, they would get up, black, the black, black members of the audience would really? get up and walk out in the middle of the performance. And the more they did it, the more it just wound me up. And I was in a bad place and I started drinking and, yeah. and that's what led to my yeah. breakdown. Yeah. But just that sense of, of rejection uh, was, was too hard for me to cope with. Yeah. It's an extraordinarily adrenalized thing that we do mm. anyway, right? You've got to go do it all again tonight, mm. do it again tomorrow night and you'll, you know, you'll keep doing it till the end of the run and your body will, as you say, wake up. As though there's an alarm clock in it, right? Yeah. At sort of, what did you say, 20 to... It's normally about uh, half six. Half so now an hour before I go, I go, bing, 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 bing. Yeah. I do my warm up and then I come yeah. in. I always have a shower and then I kind of, yeah. I start to go, oh, this yeah. is going to be great. And yeah. I, I sense it, I feel it. Yeah. It's a, it's a spiritual thing for me. Yeah. Well, we, we, you know, you, 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 you'll go through that process that you, your body always goes through. And 
the, the sense of it being received, which is always a very, very difficult thing for us, right? We, 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 most people's work doesn't get watched by, mm. an, by a paying audience. Mm. People don't turn up at the solicitors to sit and watch them, <laughs> no. you know, going through cases all day. Mm. It's, it's, it's a peculiar, it's not digging ditches, but it is a very peculiarly odd way to make a living in front of other people judging you. Mm. That's already a difficult and onerous situation. But what you're describing is a sort of weaponized state of being watched, mm. right? And how are you with being with that sense of eyes on you now? Well, again, because I've done the work myself and because I don't care, I'm aware that the majority of critics are, are white. The majority of uh, journalists are white. So, and as I write in the book, you know, this is for me, you know, unlike America, where there's much more of a, I get a sense of it being much more of a, a black space in places. Britain still is predominantly a white space. Mm. And the business is still predominantly, even though there's a younger generation of black actors, the young generation of black actors doing very well, it's still predominantly a white space. And I understand that now. And I, I, I know I operate within that space. Whereas I think before, the hostility of acting in that space did throw me. Mm. And you talk about that weaponization. So like now, you know, I, I can open the paper tonight and there'll be something, another bad story about Meghan Markle. Well, you know, another bad story about a, a black, you know, it might be a black football or whatever. But, so I, I'm used to still having that subtle negativity mm. directed towards people who look like me. So I don't necessarily take it on board anymore. I think once I did take it on board, back in the day I took it on board, right. but I simply don't care anymore. And that's been a tremendous, I'm, I'm, I'm free, as, it, as, as they say. It's, and it's a tremendously uh, releasing sort of experience to sort of, you know, to feel that my talent is enough, I'm enough. What I do and what I've done and being so open has almost made me go, well, I think I, I describe it as once you've run naked, especially writing, writing that book, once I've run naked through the village, once you've run that, you don't care. <laughs> and I've, I've run naked through the village in my documentary, in the book. I've gone, look, yeah, I was mad. I was in a mental institution. I was taking tablets. I was babbling. I was absolutely at my lowest ebb. Because I've been so honest about that, I just, it's just been liberating. So I feel strangely empowered by God. that vulnerability. Long may you carry on running naked through the village, <laughs> mate. <laughs> All right, there he goes. There goes David running naked through the village. I don't think he meant that literally. I don't think he actually ran naked through a village. I think it's just a figure of speech. Though who knows? He may... I run naked through the occasional village. Please join me for part two. There's so much more good stuff. For example, you're going to really want to hear about his relationship with Martin Luther King, both on stage and off stage. It's really extraordinary. And um, never let it be said that this podcast isn't classy. Where else are you going to hear the use of the word hobgoblinization? Hmm? Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny, but here it is, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.